welcome to MySecurity TV and our Tech and Sec Weekly. My name is Chris Coverage. I'm the Executive Editor with MySecurity Media. And today we're joined by Joe Stewart Ratray, ISACA's Information Security Advisory Group. And from Chicago, Sophia Kazi, uh, ISACA's Privacy Professional Practice Leader. We're going to be looking at Privacy in Practice 2022, the latest ISACA report. Uh, it's a survey, but it does show a, a significant skills gap uh, within the privacy sector. So it'd be very interesting to see how privacy teams are structured, the privacy workforce, privacy-related challenges, and privacy by design. So without further ado, let's be joined by Sophia Kazi and Joe Stewart Ratray. There we go. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank Pleasure you for having us. Very good. Uh, Joe, it's great to be joined by you. You're here in Adelaide, and Sophia, you're in Chicago. Uh, we might start with Sophia, just take us into the background of this particular report, Privacy in Practice 2022. I understand it's the second report, uh, but again, privacy and security, that's something we're gonna be talking about today as well. And our audience uh, may not be across privacy as much as they possibly should be. I don't think I am either. So I'm looking forward to this particular discussion uh, and walking through the report. So yeah, just how the, re the report and the survey is structured. Yeah, absolutely. So we conducted this survey in the third quarter of 2021. We sent it to 27,000 ISACA constituents. And so these were people who had one of three ISACA certifications that were either focused on security or privacy. And of the people that we sent it to, 832 people responded. Um, ISACA is a global organization, so we did have international representation. That said, the largest segment of our respondents were from North America. So I am curious to hear Joe's take on some of the findings from our survey. Um, the revenue of our respondents, that also varied quite a bit. Um, and the top most represented industry was technology services and consulting. And our respondents were rather seasoned professionals. Uh, about a quarter had more than 20 years of experience in their current field, and then two thirds had six to 20 years of experience. And as you mentioned, this is the second year that we have conducted the survey. And before we move to Joe, what kind of questions you're being are you asking and what was the do you start with a purpose or you you create the structured uh, questions what are the sort of the key uh, questions and, and the approach that you take so one of the key things that we are looking at is the workforce. Uh, we saw last year in our previous year's survey, as with security, privacy professionals are in demand and those roles are taking a long time to fill and it takes a while to find the right person for the right role. Um, as for how we kind of write the survey report and determine what we focus on, we let the data kind of do the talking. Once we have the results, we see what some of the key trends are. Um, and again, some of the biggest ones that you'll see in privacy are pretty similar to what we're seeing in security. As well. And Joe, uh, here in Australia and Asia Pacific, uh, most of any, well, we're, we're both obviously ISACA members. I'm an ISACA member uh, as well, so I should disclose that. But we have done a number of ISACA report reviews over time. Uh, privacy, where, do, yeah, maybe we, let's start with that privacy and security and the divide and those initial observations that you have here uh, in Australia. Sure, Chris. I actually see it as being a little bit different. I see it, if you think of a Venn diagram, I think of it as privacy, security, risk and assurance and physical security. And yep. there's a bit in the middle where we all meet. And that's yep. where the rubber hits the road, right? And in Australia, we're seeing it more and more. With my clients, I'm seeing that I'm doing things like I'm working very closely with the chief privacy officer. And as a consulting CISO, you know, I'm working with 
the Chief Privacy Officer to ensure that we educate our staff um, about both security and privacy. Because sometimes there's also this, you know, we have mandatory breach reporting here in, in, in Australia and uh, there is often uh, this mistake that, oh my God, it's a data breach. In fact, it's not a data breach. What it actually is, is a breach of policy. So there's um, uh, still quite a lot of confusion in the marketplace and I'd much rather people report to me that they think there's a privacy breach or they think there's some kind of breach and then determine uh, that it's not and that it's actually a, a policy breach. So I think that's the important thing to make sure that we work cross-functionally within a business to ensure that both privacy and security are actually in concert, really important. How do you think companies are grappling with either a chief security officer, chief privacy officer, chief data officer? Where where do you see the divide there? Are, are you seeing chief privacy officers or do you find that they're chief data science? No. Yeah, how do you see it being structured? Because <laughs> I, I I, I'm not coming across a lot of chief privacy officers. I'm not uh, seeing Chris, that. I would, they're not chief privacy officers necessarily, but there are privacy officers within organisations. Yeah. And I think you'll find that, uh, the you know, if you're looking at, at, at data, chief data officers, oftentimes you find that that's actually a conflict with privacy. You know, that's that whole discussion yeah. about what data are we harvesting? Why are we harvesting it? And are we using it for the purpose for which it was intended, the purpose for yeah. which it was collected, right? Otherwise, it's actually illegal in most jurisdictions. So that's an issue. But I am seeing privacy officers, not necessarily chief privacy officers, but definitely okay. privacy officers. And they and often have a legal background. Oh, okay. And are they tend to be, well, okay, that's an interesting one. Are they reporting to legal? Or are they going up through the CIO? Generally report through the um, uh, chief legal counsel or gen legal general counsel yeah, within an yeah. organisation, sometimes through the chief risk officer. Yeah, right. If the organisation has a chief risk officer. So that's the interesting part with privacy. But, but um, with it sitting, it, it needs to sit pretty much encapsulated you know because it's it's a whole range of stuff that has to be dealt with um uh that they, they will need to call other people in you know like the it is multidisciplinary yeah it's quite yeah. a multidiscipline isn't it as you say you've got Correct. the venn diagram there where you've got we have been speaking to chief data science officers so they're they're the ones out there trying to gather as much information mm. as possible mm to make better business decisions, but then you will need that legal and privacy officers there, making yeah. sure that you don't overstep the mark. And then you need the cyber security and security teams there to make sure that you keep that data secure. It's, uh, Sophia, would you agree with that? And is that maybe what you saw out of the report like this, that it's been treated in that way in terms of um, the privacy workforce? Absolutely. So one of the most common things that we saw is that privacy professionals are working with others. They can't do their work alone. They are working most often with security professionals, but also, as Joe mentioned, risk professionals are crucial and legal and compliance professionals. Um, a lot of people who are technical privacy experts really have the ins and outs of controls, but they don't have the legal knowledge needed to be able to understand what exactly is GDPR asking of me or what exactly is China as privacy law asking of me. So that we are seeing quite a bit of this cross-functional collaboration that's really necessary for all privacy professionals. I'm seeing one here. You've got a graph, figure two, staff privacy roles. 
And as just Joe has explained, uh, legal compliance practitioners, technical IT staff, excluding security professionals, risk professionals, and security professionals uh, all indicate strong uh, sort of privacy roles. So it does cross over. So you might be a security professional, cyber security professional, privacy is going to be there on your gambit and the same with legal and compliance. Now, this maybe brings us to one of the key takeaways was the skills gap here. And I suppose it is one of those things where it sits across so many different domains. Do you specialize in privacy? And is that is that the finding, Sophia, in terms of this one, in terms of uh, whether it's just privacy skills, is it the knowledge? Where, where is the skill base for a privacy professional? It, it's interesting you ask that. It really comes down to experience and experience with a few different things. So people need to have technical experience, which I think makes sense. Also just prior hands-on experience in any kind of privacy role. And then also if you've completed any kind of hands-on training course in privacy, that's also really important and something that's needed. Um, one thing that I do think is interesting is that about 30% of our respondents said that they actually don't consider a university degree important. So it's really not even about, do you have the knowledge? It's more, are you able to apply the skills that you do have? And even someone would say communications back, this is a, uh, what would they say? It's maybe soft skills come into play where you don't need technical skills necessarily. Uh, <laughs> Joe, don't like soft skills. Um, maybe talk us into your observations in that as well. And yeah, particularly for say, particularly if there's a skills gap, career transition, is there opportunities here uh, as well? So yeah, your thoughts there? Uh, look, I hate the term soft skills. Right? Fair enough. And, I was, and having done 11 <laughs> years of psych study, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Go for it. It's the hardest thing to teach. They're not soft skills, they're actually hard skills, right? Because some people have it, and some people don't because they're deeply technical people. So the idea of putting the niceties around it, the soft skills, not necessarily in their bailiwick, right? So so I actually, I always grimace when I hear soft skills because it's just such <laughs> a hard that. thing. What's a better yeah. term, Joe? What do you think? I think we're talking about communication skills here. Erica, right? yeah, human so, skills maybe. <laughs> well, almost. So yes, but I think that the thing when, you know, you're talking about where do we find our uh, privacy people? I actually think you have to really want to be involved in privacy. Yeah. And I'm going to be totally honest here. It's fairly dry. It is fairly legal. I mean, if you look at the Australian privacy principles, they're derived directly from the Australian privacy legislation. And it is pretty dry. And you have to have a good understanding. I understand why it sits often with legal, because uh, because of the legal implications, not just of the privacy legislation itself, but but the greater impact on an organisation that there might be, particularly when reputational damage to an organisation come, potentially comes into play. It is difficult to find in the Australian context currently, it's difficult to find anybody um, who's prepared to A, move to a new job, uh, and B, who's actually available as a result of that. During the pandemic, yeah. we've seen the um, market just dry up so much. People are not prepared to jump ship and move on to other, other roles. So the big resignation has kind of been a bit of a fallacy in this part of the world. Um, so, you know, it took me six months to find an information security analyst, for instance. 
and then I had to take one from a different different state than I had been anticipating. So it's, it is quite difficult. Uh, I'm looking at here, on average, how long does it take your organisation to fill legal compliance privacy positions with a qualified candidate? 12% uh, over six months, uh, and then three to six months, about 20, about a quarter uh, was three to six months. So when you're looking at that, that's uh, well over a third. Uh, it's taking three to well over six months. Uh, so they are not available. And that could be well be the opportunity here, as Joe just mentioned, uh, we have a sort of a remote workforce now. Um, Sophia, is that an opportunity here where privacy roles can be filled, they don't necessarily have to be in the office. It's something that you can have someone working remote and consulting a little bit more. Is it does it have to be a full time role as well in terms of uh, the type of organisation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I do think we are moving toward being open to hiring the right people, even if they're not necessarily within a certain radius to your office. And I do think a lot of organizations are beginning to rely more on consultants. Uh, perhaps, you know, there's a new privacy law going into effect in a couple of months and you just need someone temporarily to really help you get up to speed. So we are seeing more of a reliance as well on consultants or some kind of outside contractor who might have privacy knowledge. I think it's the actual, let's even go to the title of this session is Privacy in Practice. Joe, if you're a, a CISO or a security professional in a in an organization, you should know where your what your data is and, and where that data is. Is that kind of the the starting point, do you think, in terms of a privacy program that they would then report to legal to say, well, legal should be saying, okay, um, yeah, there's that that divide there. Legal only needs to know in terms of its compliance, it doesn't need to know anything more beyond that, and they probably won't want to know. But uh, from the security team and the data, they should know what it is and where it is. Is that asking too much? No, I think that's absolutely the one of the first places that you need to need to start from is what data do you have? Where is it held? As I said before, why do you have it? Is it what is it being used for, and is it being used for the purpose that was intended? So to me, they're the really important issues. You need to be across that absolutely. As a security professional, let alone a privacy professional, you need to know. You also need to understand if you're harvesting personally identifiable information, for instance, how is that being protected? So this is again where security and privacy need to work together. How is this being protected? Where is where does it live in in certain in circumstances in Australia and in certain industries or certain certain um, industry sectors? It's preferred that it is all kept on shore, which means all workloads have to be kept on shore. So it's no point saying, oh yes, I've got this terrific uh, application, but all the data is going to be stored in Ireland. Yep. You know, so that's the other thing you need to be aware of. What is what's the legislation or the requirements around your particular industry vertical as well? So you would start with a posture uh, of security first, uh, and then you move to the compliance. You know, do you need all that information as well? Rafia, I'm just looking. At, there's a figure 15. How does your organisation monitor the effectiveness of a privacy program? Uh, does every organisation need a privacy program or is it more compliance driven? Yeah, where, whereas, and we often argue, that's often an argument in uh, cybersecurity is you don't want a compliance driven cybersecurity uh, program because you're going to fall short. But how does it work with privacy? 
I would agree with that idea. If you're purely compliance driven, you're just going to be kind of reactive and stuck having to adjust at the last minute. As we've seen just in the last year, so much has happened as far as privacy goes with huge fines, new laws and regulations being passed. And so I do really believe that all organizations should have some kind of privacy program in place and not just wait for compliance. One of the other big reasons is you could have a privacy breach be totally incompliant, but have some kind of privacy breach. And that's still going to hurt your customers, cause a lot of reputational damage, even if there isn't necessarily one of those big fines that we're seeing associated. So I do think it's important to have a privacy program, even if it's not legally required for you at this point, especially because I think that may not be the case in the future. And, and Joe, your thoughts there? Yeah, look, I think it's interesting. Uh, I believe that privacy like security needs to be built in from the get-go. It's no point trying to shove the cat back in the bag once it's out, right? So so to me, you know, we have to also recognise that in Australia, Australia runs on small business. But even the smallest business has to understand the data that it's got, why is it collected it, how is it protecting it? And that's where we need the educative piece for all organisations, not just the large organisations. This is an everybody kind of thing. So from ideation, we're seeing a lot of digital transformation in businesses. So what we really need to be looking at is, is we need to be looking at security and privacy being built in from ideation through implementation and beyond. And that's, I'm just looking at the frameworks here. Uh, obviously the GDPR was the main one. I think it was what, 2018 that that came in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, but Australia then brought in a data breach notification act. We've kind of stayed away from that. In fact, most, uh, it's only really European standards now with the GDPR, uh, but also you've got the NIST privacy framework and then 27,002, then we move into COBIT. Um, the frameworks, and again, Joe, back to even the small business, you don't want it to be uh, um, a cost burden uh, in this either. It should be easy uh, as well. Sophie, what is, is that the GDPR is the main driver still? I see uh, that's really the main one. And then the NIST privacy framework both got 50 and 47% in terms of the frameworks being used. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if this changes in the future. GDPR was kind of, you know, the first big data protection thing that we saw that's going to have that had that huge impact. I anticipate this is going to change with China's privacy law coming into effect some point down the road, the United States may as well. Um, one thing that I'm not entirely surprised by is that the NIST privacy framework was so widely accepted. Given the popularity of the cybersecurity framework, these two frameworks really fit well together. And so, as you mentioned, you know, for a small business, if you're already using the NIST cybersecurity framework, using the privacy framework is not actually going to be that difficult because you have a relatively good understanding of it and you're already thinking in those terms. Um, so I anticipate things like the NIST privacy framework will continue to remain up there, but as new laws and regulations go into effect over the years, I don't know that GDPR will always remain you know, in the top three. Perhaps there's going to be another country or region's regulation that'll make it up there. And Joe, I think in, in Australia, I tend to see the ISO standards being referred to rather than GDPR and even the notifiable data breach is reactionary as well. It's not really a... Oh, no, it shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't be, but it, that's what it's there for in terms of the legislation. Um, um, yeah, what, what, what would be your advice here in terms of the frameworks that you'd refer to as an Australian organisation? Quite honestly, GDPR is bigger than Ben-Hur. 
you know, I was on the original yeah. ISACA GDPR working group and I was, you know, the one with the international view on this. Australian organisations that deal with the EU uh, and EU citizen, the EU citizenry are obliged under GDPR. So that's, again, something that a lot of Australian organisations don't seem to be aware of. Um, in Australia, when we talk about small business, small business in Australia is much smaller than small business in, in the States. Our small yeah. business here would be seen as being micro businesses in, in the US. So we don't want it to be either a cost burden or indeed a labour burden on small organisations. So there has to be, a, you know, we have to give them some understanding of what their responsibilities are without it sending their businesses to the wall. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one thing. And, you know, you, you, the notifiable mandatory breach uh, legislation, actually, as an organisation, we should be putting in place uh, the response teams. We shouldn't get to the point that we have to notify the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner about a breach, because hopefully it doesn't happen. But if we do, we should have the protocols in place that we get our privacy, security and senior executive executives together in a team to look at how we deal with it. So that's what you need to put together and you need to make sure it works as well. Um, don't just write it up straight from the privacy principles because in, in reality it won't probably work in yeah. your organisation. So you need to run a few things through it to make sure it's going to work, That's which is really important. You know, NIST has not had the huge take up here as it has in the States and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is it tends to be a little bit US centric. NIST has this reputation of being originally very government, US government focused. So, but certainly the ISOs have very much had focus here um, and so I think that's where we've why we've gone down that path because it's it's the devil that you do know rather than the devil that you don't know and also the Australian privacy principles are quite different from GDPR or yeah. indeed the US because the US it's state by state there's there's not a federal a single federal law so uh, I think that's the difference that we see as well. I think here in Australia we are updating the identity identity framework, a digital identity framework here as well. So that might impact because the Privacy Act it's dated in the 1980s. It's hardly been updated or touched much. Uh, uh, the privacy principles time. and privacy principles came after that and then mandatory notification was in 2018. So yeah. it, it is time to relook at it. And yes, you're right about digital identity. Um, you know, if you are now a company director, um, you're expected to have a a government director's ID, which yep. you know, I've done, I've done mine. It's got mine uh, too. <laughs> yep, there you go. And you know, as security professionals, we're probably going, oh, I don't really want to do that. But you know, that's the way of the world, unfortunately. So we do have to do that. So yes, it is. There is legislation. There was. There's just been a consultation period. So we should see that legislation hopefully tabled. Um, later this year, given we have an election in May, I would imagine it will be late this year, early next yeah. year, before we actually see that, that, that tabled in the, in the House. I would probably suggest next year. Um, mm. Figure 19. I'd like, I'd, like to, I'd like to think it was this year, but you're right, it'll be next year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly how things are going on here. They're releasing text messages here. I don't know how that goes with privacy, but uh, I don't oh, think we're well. setting a very good stand, example here in Australia. Sophia, you probably may not have heard of that. But um, Figure 19, common privacy failures. I think this might be a good one, although there is privacy training. We'll cover that next uh, before we finish up. But 
the common privacy fail is not building privacy by design in application or services. That's a bit of a giveaway question. It's like uh, not having privacy by design. That could be a range of different things. Lack of training was the other big one. Uh, bad or non-existing detection or personal information. Uh, sorry, bad or non-existing detection of personal information. Data breaches and leaks uh, and non-compliance with applicable laws and regulations. And then other was 4%. So those top four uh, are quite broad statements. Sophia, what are you, was there anything else in this report that we would see in terms of what are those common policy failures? This one reading this is that they don't have any training and they don't have a privacy by, by design uh, framework, they're not even building it. So do you think privacy as a takeaway from this report isn't being taken as seriously as it should? In a way, I actually think this question gets at this idea that privacy doesn't have enough resources. Um, we looked at our respondents who said they always practice privacy by design compared to our total. It's interesting, 63% said it's a common failure, but 63% aren't always practicing privacy by design. So why is that? And those that always practice it just have more resources. They have larger staff sizes. They feel that their board is adequately prioritizing privacy. They are more likely to feel like they have adequate funding. And I think this translates into this idea of lack of training as well. You know, if you don't have that buy-in and that tone at the top that privacy is something we value, are you really going to be able to get everybody to complete their, you know, one hour privacy training every year? It might be tough. So I think this is really getting at this idea that yes, to your point, privacy needs more and until they can get the resources that they need, they're not going to be able to do the right things, like provide adequate training, really have a good grasp on all the data that their organization has, and being able to practice privacy by design more frequently. Joe, we just mentioned the director's identification. Do you think the boards, we've been sort of banging on about boards need to take cybersecurity more seriously? Do you think privacy might be a trigger for them if they feel that there's a strong compliance or reputation damage there from a breach in terms of breaching the privacy? Very good question, Chris. I think one of the things that we need to consider is that privacy now is where security was 10 years ago, just getting vision, right? Even though it's been around a long time, as you said, our yeah. privacy um, legislation first went through the Commonwealth in in um, the 80s, but, but here we are in, in 2022 and we're having this discussion as though it's for the first time, right? So I think, I seriously think privacy is where security was 10 years ago. And we're still struggling to get security uh, onto the board table and size those in the, in, the, in the right spot in the executive. So we're definitely going to have the same issue with, with privacy globally. I think in Australia, there seems to also be this notion if privacy sits with legal, then, oh, they've got it covered. Yeah. You know, I've heard that often and there's not the thought of privacy being um, built in by design into that digital transformation piece. So that's where you need a CISO, a CISO, who's very much aware of, of privacy as well so that they can they can then bring in legal as they need to. Because I know looking recently with some clients at at uh, heads of agreement with software vendors, for instance, and you look at it and the, and the privacy is very light on. And so you actually have to talk about, have those hard discussions with them about the data, where it is, how it's protected from a security and a privacy perspective. So it's a double-edged sword. Um, and I do think that we need to, um, 
be pushing it upstairs as well, because as we know, the buck always stops with the board. Well, the, I suppose there's two points to the privacy. One is the corporate compliance uh, in terms of collecting information. And if you have a look at something I've looked at quite significantly uh, in recent times is uh, machine learning, AI, the power of technology, and we're moving down into device, you know, think about zero trust uh, principles. They want to know everything about that device, its behavioral analytics, all of that is sort of moving really into someone, someone's personal behavior, where they are, what they're doing, just in time access, identity management, all of that really pushes against the privacy approach. And I think that's where, Joe, I think you're right, because privacy in the 1980s and all the last 20 years has been, it's a different, it means different things now with the technology and the digital transformation. We're able to gather so much more data and machines are now gathering data and humans are using those machines and that tells a lot about a human. Is that where, is that the, the, the challenge here, Sophia, in terms of the, the pushback? Because consumers have been giving out their data. If you read a, you know, you sign up to Facebook or TikTok, you're basically giving your wife away. Yeah, yeah, track everything about me and you'll know everything about me and share it with anyone you want. Is that not the, the pushback now is with privacy? And that's the challenge where I think both consumers, but also enterprise have just gone, well, no, no one's really worrying about privacy. Privacy is a myth. We've actually had a, a data scientist uh, on our show uh, from the CSIRO who basically said that that is a mm. data privacy is a myth uh, and it's not achievable. Is that the pushback uh, on privacy? Why people might not be taking it as seriously? I think that's a big part of it. We think about how much easier your life can be when you give away some of your privacy, right? There's these automatic floor cleaning robots that learn the layout of your home. Yeah. And you might think, wait a minute, do I want them to know that? But then you think, yes, I like having clean floors. And to go backwards like that, to take something away, it's just hard for people. Um, that said, I do think people are getting a little bit better about understanding why they want to may want to protect their privacy, but I still think there's a long way to go. Uh, you know, a lot of websites will have some kind of cookie notice, but does the average person really understand what a cookie is or the fact that what if my browsing data is combined with data from some other data set to identify me? I don't think people have that knowledge. Um, so I think there's still a ways to go as far as education in the general public when it comes to having people make decisions that are going to best protect their privacy. Um, and Joe, maybe a final one on training uh, as well, uh, but maybe even your observations on on what I just mentioned earlier as well with the the pushback on privacy and how even maybe Australian consumers uh, have been viewing privacy. Look, I absolutely uh, agree with Sophia on this point. Um, I think that we need to be aware of our consumers need the education, absolutely 100%. And you're right, Sophia, I don't read the cookie notices all the time. I do sometimes because that's who I am. But, you know, if there's a privacy policy and it says in Australia, it will say, you know, for our privacy policy, please go to an, a link or go to our website. Do you always go there? Probably not. So we need to make it simpler for consumers to understand. That's a really important part. That's on the consumer side. When it comes to anomalous, monitoring anomalous behaviour, we have been doing that as security professionals forever 
it's not new. Yeah. So why is there pushback now? Because if you sign, when you sign your information security policy or acceptable use policy, when you sign on to an organisation or when it's updated, you're actually signing on for that monitoring to be allowed. So it, private, that there have been discussions in Australia about the reasonable right to privacy in the workplace. So that's another discussion, but that's really not around anomalous behaviour on, on networks, but rather about workplace surveillance. That's yep. a different thing altogether, right? But I do think that training is incredibly important, both the government ensuring there's training available for uh, about privacy, particularly for small business. I think there are, there are three elements here. There's small business, there's consumer, and then there's organisational, right? And within organisations, we should be giving privacy um, training. And, and as I said, you know, I've worked very closely with in one organisation with the privacy officer, and she and I did some joint training sessions for frontline workers. So people who are out in the frontline caring for individuals for whom security nor privacy are probably in front of mind, looking after a sick person is what they do. So we did that, that training and basically both said, our doors are open, you have any questions, come ask us those questions. And, and we got some great feedback as a result of, uh, of, of the workforce seeing the united front and making it simple and simple to report a potential issue as well. That's the other thing we have to train people, that we're not the bad guys. We're not going to make it hard for you. You come talk to us about what's happened and we'll see how we can assist you with that. And I think the enterprise training will always help uh, individuals share that. It's a bit like cybersecurity training across an enterprise will help people in their homes as well. And I think privacy also uh, covers on that. I'm looking at figure 20. When does your organisation provide privacy training? Most are doing it annually, about 70%. Uh, as part of new hire training, just over 50%. And then after uh, after the occurrence of a significant event, 17%, that's often about with uh, in line with security training too. They only get security training after an event, which is always too late. And then only about 13% are doing it quarterly. So th there obviously are programs and training out there and there is always a demand. Um, maybe some takeaways, Sophia, do you think this report will see another one in 2023? Uh, and maybe also the there was a little bit of a change from the last year's report as well. It, did you see any trend between uh, the first report and this report? And do you anticipate uh, moving forward with another one? Well, we will definitely be moving forward with another one next year. I'm excited to see how the trends play out. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that based on our survey findings, this year privacy teams are bigger than last year, median and average, but people are more likely to say that they feel understaffed. I think yeah. that is an indicator that privacy is in the spotlight now. You can't avoid it. All these major companies are making headlines for privacy non-compliance or for harm that's coming to somebody as a result of their lackluster privacy. So it is not going anywhere. I'm really glad privacy teams are getting bigger and overall it looks like funding seems to be going up, but that said, a lot is being asked of people who are in privacy roles. And I'm curious to see how that plays out next year and what kind of enforcement we're going to see this year and what new laws and regulations come up. Nice. Sophia, you just made a really good point there about harm. And that's one of the things the Australian Privacy Principles calls out is if this is if this data that has been breached or leaked, is there likelihood 
of harm coming to the individual. Now that harm could be real physical harm, it could be uh, financial harm, or it could be reputational damage. So I think that's the really important thing to say that if you're not protecting data properly, if you're not protecting people's privacy properly, these this could be the outcome. Somebody could die. Now that's a horrible thing to say, but it's a reality, right? So that's something that I think we really need to consider. We've always said that in security. Well, no one's going to die. Well, in fact, in today's world, if the information gets out there, uh, it is potentially somebody could be hurt and the worst could happen. So that's a really dim note to end on, Chris. Sorry. But it, but it it's, uh, definitely underlines the importance of privacy, I think, and you're right. Um, and today is Safer Internet Day, uh, 8th of February. Uh, here in Australia as well. So uh, I know that we did interview the eSafety Commissioner last year. Uh, she talks about uh, safety by design or online safety, and uh, that also underlines her message as well, uh, that privacy is critical. So on that note, privacy in practice 2022, we've just been discussing the ISACA survey for 2022. Uh, we did discuss a range of different areas there, but thank you so much to Joe Stewart Ratray, Asaka's Information Security Advisory Group and Sophia Kazi there in Chicago. I always like saying Chicago, it sounds really cool. Asaka, Privacy Professional Practice Leader. Thank you so much, uh, Joe and Sophia. Pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Great, lovely. Thank you very much.